The following was recorded at the 2014 Reformed Forum Theology Conference, held October 10th through 12th, 2014, at Hope Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Grays Lake, Illinois. For more information, please visit reformedforum.org. Well, thanks so much for coming, guys. Uh, this is uh, our pre-conference. Uh, we're delighted to have our first ever Reform Forum conference, and not not just here at Gray's Lake, but first one we've ever done. We've only ever been able to exhibit at uh, other people's conferences, so we're really excited to have everyone together and uh, want to welcome people that are watching. We're streaming live online. Of course, uh, the, they're, they're able to follow the content, but not going to have all the fun interaction that we've already had. So we're looking forward to a wonderful weekend with everybody here. Uh, my name's Camden Busey. I'm the president of Reform Forum. I'm also the pastor here at Hope OPC. Uh, I want to introduce to you also, we have with us today, Jeffrey C. Waddington, who is stated supply at Knox OPC in Lansdowne, Pennsylvania. He serves as Reform Forum secretary. You say hi, Jeff. <laughs> good afternoon, folks. Good to see you. And we also have Jim Cassidy, who serves as vice president of Reform Forum's board, and he's currently uh, planting a church in South Austin, named appropriately South Austin OPC. Welcome back uh, to, well, this is our live program now, so uh, thanks so much for joining us, Jim. As always, good to be here, Camden. Uh, good to be here face-to-face, actually. Uh, this is probably the first face-to-face show that we've recorded in a long time. Right. We, we've had a fun history. Uh, we, Reform Forum has been together uh, since uh, January 2008 is when we recorded our first episode, even before it was called Reformed Forum. And uh, today is uh, yeah a nice reunion of sorts because uh, we do have to record oftentimes through the airwaves and through Skype. So being face-to-face once again and also connecting with all the listeners, this is, uh, this is really a special opportunity for us. So we do want to thank everybody for joining us. Uh, we've got a special episode lined up, and we are recording live and broadcasting live around the world. And we uh, really wanted to make this a special event for everyone that was coming. Today we're going to be speaking about a very important topic. Let me introduce to you our guest here for this episode of Christ the Center. He's also one of our plenary speakers uh, for the conference uh, this weekend. We have Dr. Lane G. Tipton, who is the Charles W. Crahey Chair, uh, Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He's also co-host of the Voss Group. Welcome back, Lane. It's good to speak with you. Thanks. It's great to be here. And it's great to have you in Illinois, even though... uh, yeah, you you probably prefer to be in Texas, but at least this time of year. <laughs> I like this weather. I, it's good. I can't complain. Today we're going to be opening up a rather hot topic, and we're going to have plenty of time to discuss things. We're going to work things out here on the platform, but then we're going to have opportunity for uh, questions from uh, from you, uh, the participants, the listeners, to uh, to ask us and follow up on things. So we have plenty of time scheduled. Uh, after the this session, we'll we'll break for dinner, and we'll come back here at seven thirty p.m. for our first plenary address from Dr. Scott Oliphant, who's going to be talking about the sun as autotheos. So not your not your theme that you're going to hear or your address you're going to hear at your average conference, right? That's certainly <laughs> not not a catchy no. one by any means. No, but our <laughs> listeners know what that is and are excited about it. Absolutely. But today in this episode, we're going to be speaking about redemptive historical hermeneutics, divine authorship, 
and the Christotelism debates. That's a very hot topic, and uh, we have the right person here to speak about it. Lane has an article here in Confident of Better Things, this wonderful book that was written and collected. They are essays commemorating 75 years of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. It's edited by John Meather and Danny Olinger. And I commend this book to anyone who does not have it. We've, we've purchased several copies, and they're available for sale downstairs at the book table. Uh, so I would encourage you to pick this volume up, not only for Lane's article, but there are plenty of articles in here that are of note uh, from people like Bill Dennison, Craig Troxell, and certainly many other names that you'll know and people that have been guests on Christ the Center. Lane's uh, article in this particular uh, volume is titled The Gospel and Redemptive Historical Hermeneutics. And Jeff, of course, brought to our attention that this was one of our more popular episodes back, I think it was episode 186, wasn't 186, it? 186, Where we discussed uh, the issue of redemptive historical hermeneutics, which gets to the very core, the center of many of these uh, discussions currently going on regarding typology and the Bible and how the Old Testament relates to the New Testament. Um, just as we begin, Lane, I'll, I'll want to just open things up for our own here discussion. Oftentimes people speak about Christotelism, and they speak about Christocentrism, and it seems as if there's a dichotomy, or you must choose one or the other. First, could you explain the way those words have been used, and then how you think about that particular divide, and if it's a, an absolute distinction that must obtain. Sure. Uh, when, when some speak about Christocentrism and Christotelism, and when they're de- trying to define them in such a way that they're to be set disjunctively over against one another and used as polarizing opposites so that they cannot really be harmonized, often people say Christocentrism is the way you read the Bible as a systematic theologian, where you view Christ as the central concern of Scripture as a whole. And Christotelism is the way you read the Bible as a biblical theologian, looking forward to something that remains a surprise until it happens, namely the advent of Christ. And the Christotelic uh, model is often set over against Christocentrism, Uh, Christotelism representing the concern of biblical theology, looking at things historically where Christ is a surprise ending to a mystery novel. That's the the paradigm that's used to illustrate where systematicians are looking at the Bible as a completed whole and trying to see Christ as central in both. And, And if those are your ways of trying to get at Christocentrism and Christotelism, You've already defined yourself into an unhelpful dichotomy. And so uh, what I would like to do is is try to offer something that I think is a little more uh, useful and kind of define the terms properly so that we can see how they're distinguishable from one another and how they relate. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now first, uh, one of the things that we need to mention at first is this notion of organic unity. Uh, You developed that thought in your article in Confident of Better Things, but what do you mean by that, and and how are you viewing the Bible as a whole? Yeah, what we're trying to say when we're thinking about um, the, the, the organic character of biblical revelation after the fall is, is basically this, that there is one gospel of God, one gospel that focuses on God's Son, but it is progressively administered through history, uh, develops through time, but as it develops, it develops from what you might call in Voss's language, uh, a, a, a seed to a bud to a full blossom, 
with the coming of Jesus Christ. And, and so what we're thinking of when we're talking about a redemptive organism is we're talking about the development of the gospel of God's Son successively through stages where it, as a single gospel, as an organic unity, it develops much like a seed develops into a blood, uh, a bud and then develops into a full flower with the coming of Christ. And so we're, we're thinking of a kind of unified but developing redemptive historical revelation. One unified but developing redemptive historical revelation. And if we, if we start to think that way, we can take steps toward, I think, properly understanding how Christocentrism and Christotelism might, might relate to one another. The, the Christocentric and the Christotelic might, might be better related to one mm -hmm. another. You guys got any follow-up on that? What do you think? I was trying to, to have a brilliant thought, but I don't. I'm, enjoy, I'm, enjoy, I'm enjoying, enjoying the, uh, it's in, in conversation, it's, it is important to stress both the unity of revelation and the development, because I think typically those who are critical of what we're advocating, what, what, what Lane has outlined in his chapter, will come against us with the diversity. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're wanting to say there's develop, what they're calling diversity, we would say would be development. Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, that uh, the word of God, uh, the unity gets undermined, but it's important to, to recognize the development as well. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, could, I can use a text to give an example of how to distinguish and relate Christocentrism and Christotelism. Let, let, me, let me try this. Let me define them properly just briefly. Christocentrism is uh, the concern that the gospel of God's Son is the central redemptive subject matter of Old and New Testaments alike. That's what Christocentrism means. It means that after the fall, Christ as the second and last Adam, uh, the revelation of Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ is the central redemptive concern of both Testaments. And the Christotelic concern is that while he is the central redemptive subject matter of the Old Testament, he is also its consummative telos. So by telos, you mean goal, yeah, end but, point. Yeah, yeah. Consummative telos right. or consummative goal, mm -hmm. uh, end point, climactic fulfillment. Mm -hmm. Now, one text that makes this, I think, abundantly clear is a text like Romans 1, 1 through 4. It's one of the texts that I treat in that, yeah. that essay um, and I'll say something maybe a little differently than I did to make the same point that was already made. There are some Bibles in the pews if you'd like to follow. Sure, you can, you can look at it. Um, I'm not we going to be doing a, a close exegesis of it. But in, in Romans 1, 1 through 4, notice this, that Paul says that the gospel concerning God's Son, verse 1 and verse 3, is a gospel that is rooted in the prophetic scriptures of the Old Testament. He says... He has been a, set apart as an apostle for the gospel of God, verse 3, concerning his son, which was promised beforehand in the, in the prophets in the Old Testament scriptures. So that what Paul is proclaiming in his apostolic gospel is a gospel that has been previously set forth in the Old Testament scriptures. Hmm. So the gospel's not something that is a surprise to Paul. 
It is the data, the datum, that is already contained in the prophetic scriptures of the Old Testament. He's not innovating, in other words. It's not new. It's not a surprise. So, if the gospel of God's Son is the central redemptive subject matter of the New Testament, and if that gospel is actually rooted earlier in the Old Testament scriptures, that same gospel is the central redemptive subject matter of the Old Testament scriptures as well. And so... Christocentrism arises out of that text. Now, notice this, though. Notice in verse 2 where Paul says this. He says, this gospel, which was promised beforehand, God is the implied subject, which God promised beforehand through the prophets in the scriptures, notice this, concerning his son who descended from the flesh, the seed of David, who was declared with power to be the son of God, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. Notice what's being said. In verse 2, the gospel in its old covenant form operates under the mode of promise. So the gospel, the central redemptive subject matter of the gospel, exists in promise form. So what is it looking toward? It's looking toward its consummative conclusion, its consummative telos, its consummate goal in Jesus Christ. Then when Jesus appears, according to the seed of David, according to flesh, and is raised from the dead, what is that? That is the consummative mm -hmm. telos and the fulfillment of what was the redemptive subject matter of the Old Testament. So here's what I like to say. Mm -hmm. The Christocentric concern and the Christotelic concern are equally basic, mutually contextualizing features of both Testaments. As you've defined them. As mm -hmm. I've defined them. And so we're not saying that the Christocentric is to be preferred to the Christotelic, or the Christotelic is to be preferred to the Christocentric, nor are we saying that they should be defined in exclusion from one another. We're simply saying that the two are mutually qualifying, equally basic features of biblical revelation. They require one another. Now, give some examples here. I'm sure many of us have heard preaching under the title of redemptive historical preaching or Christ-centered preaching. If you have Christocentrism without Christotelism, no, no goal, no trajectory, no progression Progress. or development, what do you end up with? You end up with pulling Jesus out of a hat in a text, right? Well, here, here's what you wind up doing. This is fascinating. Mm. If you just say you've got Christocentrism with no consummative telos, what you've just done is gutted the progress of redemptive history and thrown it over your back shoulder. Mm -hmm. You've got some static, abstract gospel category, and you are, you're going to, here's what you're going to lose. You're going to lose the particularity and the uniqueness of old covenant typological revelation. See, if you, in other words, if Christocentrism operates at the expense of a Christotelic view, where, where the consummation of typology in the old covenant is going to reach its definitive telos and, and consummation in Christ, if you don't have that, mm -hmm. then you're, going, you're not going to look at the integrity and distinctiveness of Old Testament revelation as Old Testament revelation in promises, types, and shadows. You're, you're going to lose that altogether. Mm -hmm. 
And so what, what you'll wind up doing is almost allegorizing. You'll just divest the Old Testament. And that's a dispensationalist fear yeah. of yeah. a Reformed view of Scripture. Yeah. Right? And, and you, the net result ends up being moralistic preaching, generally speaking, in that context. Yeah, well, it, it, there, it's kind of like there's, it's a Pandora's box. There's no telling where it's going to go because it's so wrong. Yeah. You know, it, it's like yeah. pick, your, pick your bad route sermon and, and, and right. then run with it. But see, but then... But then the, go ahead. No, you, well, I was going to ask, well, what about the reverse? What if you have Christotelism? I don't know if you want to go there yet, but well, what if you have no, Christotelism without Christocentrism? Well, if, if you have Christotelism without Christocentrism, what you have is some kind of radical surprise ending. Here's the way what usually works, by the way. The, you, the, the people who advocate this and McCartney and people who follow that, and there's a broader stream of it behind them. But what they say is that the apostles take a second temple Judaic method that everyone's using, and the goal of that method is Christ. When they encounter Christ and they realize that he is the surprise ending to the Old Testament, they began to then read Christ through apostolic imagination back into an Old Testament that on its own terms was not about Christ. It was about something else. It was about the story of Abraham or the story of Moses or the story of Joshua or the story of David. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't about Christ. Christ was not in its purview. So that they, you imaginatively read Jesus back into the Old Testament using a second temple method where the telos forms your Christology, the, the New Testament imports a Christological meaning onto an Old Testament that's not in itself Christological. Well, if you do that, then what have you done? You've basically evacuated the Old Testament of its typical presentation of Christ, of its typical portrayal of the gospel of God's Son, and you wind up running the risk of making the Old Testament into nothing more than an Old Testament set, uh, uh, an, an ancient Hebrew set of stories about an ancient people's religion. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just reimagined kind of, through the lens of Christ. And then you, after the that's, that's what you do on the first read. And then you reimagine it all around Jesus. You reimagine, and T. Wright likes this language too. Um, you reimagine monotheism around Jesus. You reimagine election around Jesus. You reimagine. Um, all of the Old Testament theology around Jesus, but the, the pattern is unilateral. It's from the New back to the Old, so that your Christological reading gains all of its momentum from the New Testament, and then it's thrust back onto the Old. Well, what that means is that the Old Testament did not exert a Christological theology on the apostles. Rather, they exert the Christology onto the Old Testament. And what we're trying to say is if you do that, you have basically banished Christ from the Old Testament on its own terms in terms of the integrity of its content Mm -hmm. as Old Testament scriptures and made the Christology really a function of an imaginative, creative reading into the Old Testament from the apostles. Now, at their, at their best, a, a Christ, an exclusive Christotelist, I guess that's the way we might call it now, one who's not Christocentric in the way you've defined. Uh, at their best, they might say such creative reimagining happens under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Right. At their best. But still, functionally, it, it, it still uh, fall the activity falls basically and exclusively 
within the realm of the human author, right? How does a, a Second Peter uh, one, you know, or or a notion of divine inspiration and superintendence uh, come to bear upon these hermeneutical concerns? Because with Scripture, we we not only have many human authors over the course of millennia, but most most basically, we have two authors: a divine and a human, a primary and secondary author. Yeah. W- what controlling feature or controlling a methodological uh, power does that need to bear yeah. in a hermeneutic? Well, see, see, what's really interesting is that the, the, uh, uh, one of the best texts that helps amplify this, you notice in the Romans 1-2 I talked about, God is the implied subject. God promised the gospel mm-hmm. in advance in the prophets and the prophetic scriptures of the Old Testament, which is just a, a way of saying the whole of the Old Testament from Genesis 3 forward. But 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, is a, is a very fascinating text, and I'll just summarize it for you. But 1 Peter 1, 10 says this, that, that it was the Spirit of Christ. That, that, by the way, is language borrowed from a post-Pentecost perspective. Christ raised, hmm. glorified, and functionally identified with the Spirit. He is a life-giving Spirit. 1 Corinthians yes. 15, 45, hmm. 2 Corinthians 3, 17, Romans 8, 9 through 11. That sort of language is being invoked. The Spirit of Christ, now listen to this, the Spirit of Christ predicted... The suffering and glory of the Messiah. And so you have the Spirit of Christ predicting in advance, revealing in advance, the suffering and glory of Christ. And it's by that same Spirit that the Gospel is preached today. So that that what you get is, I like to call it, a Christological and pneumatological circle. The Spirit of Christ speaks to the prophets, reveals the suffering and glory of Christ to them. And it gets through in such a way that they understand it to be the gospel. Why? Because the Spirit is an infallibly perfect communicator. He communicates precisely what he -hmm. wants to communicate, and he does so with the pedagogy of divinity. It's perfect, right? (laughs) So it gets through so that it, it was made clear to the prophets that the Spirit of Christ was telling them they were serving not themselves but us as the Spirit of Christ predicted the sufferings and glories of Christ. So there is once again your Christocentrism, right? Mm-hmm. They know about the suffering and glory of the Messiah because the, the Spirit of Christ has revealed that to them. Yet it mm-hmm. says they were what? They were striving to know more with regard to the time and circumstances of his coming. So that what they saw, to use the language, I use this in the essay, Meredith Klein uses it. Um, What they saw is revealed yet veiled, right? It's revealed yet veiled because it's in a typical old covenant economy. So they knew by by the communicative power of the Spirit superintending infallibly what he wants them to know, revealing to them. They knew that the the Messiah would suffer and rise, yet they were longing and searching for greater specificity and clarity. Why? Because they knew there was a yet future consummative telos where this would be realized. Now, what's so interesting is this, this... Um, understanding of the gospel resident in the Old Testament scriptures, please hear this, 
is not attributed to a second reading of human authors, a second reading of an imaginative apostolic community importing Christological content into the Old Testament. This Christological material, the suffering and glory of the Messiah, is the produce of the Spirit of Christ. Mm. And, and as such, it is a clear presentation of the Messiah that is revealed, yet it is also veiled. There is greater specificity, greater clarity to come, and the prophets themselves were aware of both. So, that, mm. so that the point is if you were to ask a prophet, um, according to this text, about Christocentrism and Christotelism, he would say, I think, something along the lines of what we've said, but would attribute it to the revelatory agency of the Spirit, the divine author of Scripture. Mm. And that is what is given a, in my view, it's functionally missing in the discussions of Christotelism and, um, and, right. and, and an exclusively Second Temple Judaic understanding of how the Old Testament can become Christological once it's read after the resurrection and you read the Christological mm. back into it, this, this, this pneumatological perspective of the divine author is something that's not given any airtime mm -hmm. at all. Yeah. And it's a critical oversight. That's right. I, I think a, a passage that um, cool. <laughs> speaks to this point is uh, from Acts chapter 18. For he powerfully, this is speaking of Apollos, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Um, I mean, that's, that's pretty profound because it's from, notice it's by the scriptures that Apollos is using the Old Testament text in, in order to prove something very important, that, that the Christ prophesied in the scriptures was the Jesus that is now being proclaimed. Um, but secondly, um, notice that he's using it to refute the Jews in public. Um, he uses the Old Testament text to refute the unbelieving Jews. What are the implications? I mean, this is a question I was getting to. What are the implications of saying that Christ, the, the, the gospel of God's Son, is not inherently resonant within the Old Testament text but needs to be read back into it? Especially with regard to the accountability of unbelief among the Jews, for instance, to whom Apollos is speaking. They're held culpable. What's that? Yeah. They're held yeah. culpable for not They're believing. Hold, that's right, yeah. yeah. But if he wasn't there organically or naturally, how can they be held without excuse? That's right. Yeah. Right. And, and what Apollos is doing there is what Jesus told his disciples in Luke 24. He castigates them for failing to see him in the Old Testament scriptures, and that presupposes there's a perspicuity, a clarity about Christ resident in the Old Testament scriptures. And, you know, I, I can, you know, it's, it's really interesting. I, I hope that as people listen to our discussion, there's, there's a, a willingness to talk about the reciprocal relation between Christocentrism and Christotelism as we're defining it and stop polarizing it. The moment you hear that happening, that's good. 
The moment that starts to happen, and you're mm -hmm. not polarizing a Christocentrism and a Christotelism, that's good. But I, I think the implication is that, is that the Old Testament scripture, one of the big implications of what you're asking, the Old Testament scripture loses its authority as a divinely authored, gospel-centered revelation to sinners. And, and it becomes uh, really nothing more than a kind of, um, kind of a, a wax nose or a brute fact that was just so, like Brueggemann says this, it's so polyphonic, it's so vague, it could be subjected to so many you know, false endings, and it, is, it has such an opaqueness to it. Mm that there's no way you can get a Christological reading out of it until Christ comes. And then you can have the aha moment, like the sixth sense, when the ring falls off. Something like that. Then the aha moment comes. Um, I, th I think that, uh, that, that, is, that calls into question, then, the reliability and clarity of the Old Testament as a whole. Because if Jesus is saying that's what the Old Testament on its own terms is about. If you listened to Moses, you would come to me. If you knew Moses, you would know me. Abraham rejoiced and saw my day. If you take that away, mm. you're, really, you're really calling into question the reliability and authority and clarity of God's word. And it, it actually makes the apostles into men that are really playing kind of fast and loose with the truth, yep. isn't it? Yep. Calls into question uh, as, as well Jesus' own teaching and its credibility in so much as Jesus himself teaches that it is he himself revealed in the Old Testament yeah. scriptures. Now, now the, the way that a pure Christotelist um, would, would come back on this, here's, here's, if you're ever wondering, well, what in the world can they say to this? Well, they have plenty to say. Here's one thing they'd say. They'd say, look, you guys, you don't understand. They'd say, look. <laughs> Listen to what we're saying. This is what they would say. To Do you hear the words coming out of my mouth? They'd say something like this. They would say, sorry for the rush hour. We didn't mean to uh, allude to that. <laughs> I um, did. Yeah, <laughs> okay, he did. Um, <laughs> Rich Tucker, right? Um, but it's, it's this. Here's, and you've got to get into this. This is going to be foreign to most of you to think this way. But I want to give you an example. Here's what they're going to say. They're going to say, listen, stop believing Jesus is speaking to you in the Gospels. Okay? Stop that. Stop believing that you're reading an Old Testament that presents Christ to you. Stop it. And realize that you are receiving a reimagined Jesus and a reimagined Old Testament. Jesus and the Old Testament are being reimagined Christotelically so that what you hear from Jesus is actually the apostolic community creatively reinterpreting him, just as they are creatively reinterpreting the Old Testament to be about him. See, the, the roots of Christotelism are not Gerhardus Voss. It's just not, it's not even on the, on the horizon. The roots of Christotelism is this, that every second temple Jew was using 
the same method. And here's the way they thought. If you're the Essenes or the Pharisees or Qumran, you take, please hear this, you take your contemporary experience and you make that the overarching interpretive category by which you make sense of the Old Testament. Turns out the Old Testament was about Qumran. Mm -hmm. Turns out the Old Testament was about the Essenes or the Sadducees. Turns out the Old Testament was about whatever community experience says that Old Testament was about. And it, so, so you reimagine the Old Testament according to the experience of your community. The apostles do exactly that. But however it's explained, they happen to get the goal right. It was Jesus. And they read Jesus back into the Old Testament, just like Qumran does, just like every other Second Temple Jew does. And, and what you've got to recognize is that on that view, it, it's because of that view, there is a, such a sharp disjunct, disjunction between a Hebrew Old Testament on its own terms and a Christian reimagined Hebrew Testament on the other hand. Mm -hmm. And, and what the proponents of Christotelism will tell you, Pete Enns is, please remember, he's chief among the Christotelists. Enns, McCartney, people like that, um, in terms of the Westminster discussion. Enns goes so far, and, and I'll give an illustration of it later if you want me to, but Enns goes so far as to say, as an example of Christotelism, that there are two distinct and irreconcilable theologies of Adam. I'll tell you about this later. There's the Adam, the Old Testament Adam, and the Christotelically reimagined Adam. I'll get to that later if you want me, if you want me to. You, we do. You can, we do. Yeah. Yeah. But you okay. can mention something now if you'd like. Okay, I'll mention something now. Just do it now. <laughs> let, me, let me give you an example. We're let, here. Well, let me give you an example of, of how this works. And you've got to re realize then, this Christotelism debate, it's not about an in-house debate about some are Vossian minimalists and some are Vossian maximalists. That's not... That's, that's not the debate. Mm. The debate is on whether or not Christotelism is a function of a second temple hermeneutic and a reader response appropriation of that hermeneutic by the apostles. Mm -hmm. Reading Jesus back into it. That's what the debate is. I'll give you an example of events. And I want you to listen now for the disjunctive understanding of Adam in both Testaments. I don't know if you've heard of this book, but he wrote a follow-up to um, I and I. He's got a third one coming out now, maybe yeah, a fourth one. I've read some but, quotes uh, from But The it. Evolution of Adam is the book I'm thinking of. Now, in that book, here's what he says. He says, you've got a grammatical, historical, on its own terms, Old Testament understanding of Adam. And what is that understanding? Well, here's what he says. He says, Adam is actually a narrative construction of a post-exilic community. Israel, as a son of God, was unwise, sinned against God, and got booted, got exiled from the holy realm of Canaan. In exile, the community said, we have got to find a way to identify ourselves as the exiled people of God. And so they constructed an Adam narrative in which Adam is a precursor to Israel. He's a son of God. I'm going to be talking about this in some of the lectures. Mm -hmm. He's a son of God. He sins against God. He's exiled from Eden. 
But N says in the Old Testament, on its own terms, he is merely a narrative construction to give a post-exilic or an exil, a community in exile an identity. He frames the corporate identity of Israel as a narrative construction, but he's not historical. Now that's the understanding of Adam in terms of the Old Testament, option A. Option B, and here's how Christotelism works, Enns is explicit about this, that what Paul did with his Christotelic imagination, it just got the best of him. You can think of it this way. Paul encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus, and he finds out that there's one new humanity in Christ, Jew and Gentile. One new humanity that's been reconciled by the blood of the cross. And Jesus tells him this, and Paul just can't believe it. It's the, it, it lays the sixth sense surprise ending in the shade. It's a surprise to end all surprises. And that gets the juices flowing. And, and Paul starts reimagining really at, at a rapid rate and says, okay, look, if there's one new humanity, this is N's view, if there's one new humanity in Christ, then I must reimagine the Adam of the Old Testament to be the first created human being. And so Paul creatively reimagines Adam as an historical person. And, and here's the key. This is the quote. I can't remember the page number off the top of my head. But the, the quote well, is that... Why do we pay you to have you come out there for? You're slipping, Lane. Yeah. <laughs> I've got it on my Let's computer. Let's go home, guys. <laughs> this, is the, this is the unedited version. You guys get to see it live. We don't cut this stuff out. This oh, yeah. This stuff gets cut in other formats, I think. Um, what was I saying? I'm just kidding. But... Um, in the, but he says, and this is the key, he says that Paul's Christotelic Adam, here's the key, listen, cuts against the grain of the Old Testament's presentation of Adam. Do you hear that? It cuts against the grain. They are disparate, conflicting accounts of Adam. And you know what N says? The way it goes his Christotelism is what enables this. He's an evolutionist now. And he says, well, since science, science has proven that we can't believe in an historical Adam, I'm going to say Paul was wrong. And I'm going to go with the Old Testament view. It fits better with an evolutionary theory. Now, he does that because he's an evolutionist, but what is the hermeneutic that enables him to make such a sharp disjunction between the gra grammatical historical meaning of Adam, Old Testament Adam, and the Christotelic meaning of Adam, Paul's Adam. It's the Christotelic method. Mm -hmm. and, and so ends is someone who gives you um, early in, as early as uh, what he was doing in the early 2000s, Articles that he co-authored with Dan McCartney, another practitioner of the method, whom I interact with in that article. Um, you can call it the ends McCartney hermeneutic. Um, his 2004 article, his I&I, uh, his, his Evolution of Adam, his newer work that um, is even more radical. Mm -hmm. This is what Christotelism is, you see. And, and so you've got to recognize that it's not an in-house debate among Vossian minimalists and maximalists. It is a fundamentally different way of trying to understand the relationship of the Testaments. Mm -hmm. And it's a wholesale rejection of organism, 
divine authorship, and all of these things that we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did, I did have a question. What, what does, uh, we would call it uh, ideal or uh, exclusive Christotelism, what do you think its doctrine of God is? Oh, goodness. Um, at this particular point, it's, it's not a monolithic movement, but if you look at what ENDS has to say, um, there, there's really something that's probably close um, to um, a... a so it's, it's, it either moves in the direction of a neo-Orthodox God, who, where, where the event of revelation and the event of meaning is in Geschichte, not history. Or it moves more along the lines of open theism, where in I and I, for instance, Pete, uh, uh, Dr. Enns can say, well, in this text, Genesis 6, God doesn't know the future. Which, which to me starts to sound like a kind of Socinian, open theist notion of God. And so it's, the thing about the, the Christotelic approach is, I, I, and by the way, I should, I should just say, I don't think we should say strong or soft Christotelism. I just think there's a Christotelic method that people practice more or less consistently. And independently of any Christocentrism is what yeah. to bring things back around. And they said it over against Christocentrism yeah. and over against an organic understanding of mm -hmm. redemptive revelation. And so what, what we're trying to do um, here is, is, is clarify that that. Christocentrism and Christotelism properly defined illustrate an entirely different method and hermeneutic than Christocentrism in its standalone Enzian McCartney form. Mm -hmm. They're different theologies of, of uh, different theologies, different hermeneutics, and different, different philosophies of revelation. Oh, sure. And of course, Jeff, what you're connecting to is if you have a different philosophy or theology of revelation, that is inextricably connected to the doctrine of God. Yes, it would. Is that what flows out of? Always seems to drive mm -hmm. back to your doctrine of Scripture, your then your doctrine of God, mm -hmm. and there does seem to be an open theism, theistic, or Bardian, uh, both influences. And I don't get the sense that these men, that the men who who are practitioners uh, of pure Christotelism have necessarily read. You know, open theists, maybe they have, or, or Karl Barth, but they're they're influenced and they reflect that kind of mm. uh, method in thinking. Even There's, if it's indirect, indirect. You know, it, I mean, it's kind of in the in the air, yeah. right? I mean, unless, yeah. unless you were able to either read all the bibliographies of the various books and articles that have been produced, and you can say, "Aha, here's the origin of that idea." Right. But oftentimes, these biblical studies will be conducted independent of, of theology. Yeah. And, and so that is also kind of like people, biblical studies scholars will often cry foul if they hear theological terms or anybody importing any theological categories into the discussion. Um, and th that's another thing we can talk about. But in, in light of that, which is a methodological issue, how we study our Bibles, are we allowed to think theologically? Are we allowed to well, think of the doctrine of God? But I want to push you a little bit um, just for the sake of discussion— uh, for the sake of the argument, I guess, it's kind of a Vantillian thing to do. Uh, if we were to talk about the Old Testament on its own terms, and I, I'm asking you to open up you know, your understanding of grammatical historical exegesis, can it be done on its own? Is that an appropriate thing to do? 
in, independent of theological consideration or even a redemptive historical hermeneutic, for instance. Dr. Gaffin also has a, an article on redemptive historical hermeneutics, which is uh, in a Five Views book we got downstairs, too. So yeah. let, well, let me take say it this. away. Yeah, well, let me just say this as a preface. Those of you who have the means, um, Vern Poitras, Dr. Poitras, a colleague of mine at Westminster in Philadelphia, has just published an article in Jets. Yeah, came out this entitled, week. Entitled, Dispensing with Merely human meaning, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and what he's trying to get at is this, that when we're trying to ascertain the meaning, um, the, think of it this way, just try it this way, the grammatical, historical meaning of an Old Testament text. What are the fundamental presuppositions that are going to come to bear on discerning the grammar and, his, and history that are behind that particular text. Well, you're going to look at and be concerned about the human author, the secondary author. But, 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 and, and you're going to care as much as you can find, you're going to care about historical context, where you are in the history of special revelation, what situations and immediate contextual and historical issues have arisen. But think of this, think of this. What is the grammar and history of the Old Testament. What is it? Let me say this. It is theognustos, breathed out by God. And so the words have a divine author, and the history has a divine controller. Mm-hmm. So that so that the, the history is, is what? It's not just bare, brute fact history. It is part of an organic, progressive history of special revelation. It's not, oh, let me put it this way, it's not a history of religion. That is a mere examination of what ancient people in their own encultured milieu happen to believe. That's what the grammatical historical method, when it's practiced in terms of Christotelism, that's the kind of assumption that Dan McCartney has that I pick up on in the essay. He's thinking of a history of religion's understanding of the Old Testament, that the grammar and the history are human and encased within an historical horizon that must be reconstructed in order to be understood. But in addition to that, what we want to say is what? that the grammar, the words, are from God, and the history under consideration is a history of special revelation, um, an organic, progressive, divinely authored reality that must inform the way you ask the question, what does that text on its own terms, up to its point in redemptive history, what does it mean? And so you're, you've, got, you've got to say this, that divine authorship and the history of special revelation are absolutely essential and non-negotiable features to factor into grammatical historical meaning. And the problem with people like um, um, Enns and McCartney, I've heard this, uh, it's in print, McCartney's put it in print, Enns has put it in print, we have had discussions about this face-to-face on a number of different occasions. Grammatical historical is, 
is reconstructed human meaning right. only. And, and my point is that is neither properly grammatical <laughs> nor properly historical. It's right. reductionistic. Right, which comes back to our doctrine of God and our doctrine of inspiration and revelation, because yeah. these are the very words of God. Yep. He spoke them, even though he superintended and guided the human authors to write his very words. They are the human author's words, but more importantly, they're the divine author's words. That's right. And, and what I think yeah. McCartney does, for instance, in the essay that I wrote, what I think McCartney does is something kind of akin to the way evidentialists will reason with atheists. He grants grammatical historical meaning to be only human historical meaning. And then, because he has backed himself into that kind of dead end, the only way he can get to a fuller meaning is what? The surprise ending and the second read. Mm -hmm. But he's screened out a fuller meaning from the outset because he doesn't take the Old Testament to be divinely authored, history of special revelation. He grants the fundamental problem he should have critiqued from the outset. Mm. And once he grants it, he, gets, he tries to put a Band-Aid on a gaping wound. And it just blows the Band-Aid off and bleeds maybe even more. So what, what you have to do is you have to cauterize, you know, and you have to say, and this is what Dr. Poitras is doing, by the way, in a, in a, in a very helpful way. You have to say to the, the practitioners of grammatical historical method, look, to say that grammatical historical meaning is reducible to the human author's intended meaning alone is idolatry. It's an autonomous quest for an autonomous intentionality that is not subordinated to and related to the self-revelation of the triune God. Yeah, and but see, here's what our generation's doing this, and I'm I, I get concerned about it. I'm not a blogger. I don't like short. He's on Twitter, sentences. but he's never tweeted. That's right. He has followers, <laughs> but no tweets. I'm the tweetless Twitterer. <laughs> tweetless Twitterer. Uh, okay. Didn't know I, that, that, that. I made that one up, and I you, you can tell. But um, but what what I want to say is this that. That, that, that I don't read, some people send me things that are outrageous or not thought through and things like that, but there's something about the blogosphere, and I, I haven't been able to put my finger on it, that excels in sound bites that don't penetrate, that don't um, develop deep structures and wind up misconstruing and ac actually almost maligning positions. And, um, and, and so what we need to do and wh where we need to excel is, is when we're talking about this, tunnel, tunnel down, dig deeply down to the foundations of, of what Christotelism is. And, um, and once you do that, if you do understand your, uh, the, the kind of ABCs of Reformed Biblical Theology and presuppositional uh, apologetics and, and those, some of those deep structures that you get mediated from, you know, from Calvin to Boving to Murray to Gaffin to Klein, Van Til, people like that, you'll be able to see where all the problems are with the, the Christotelism. But what it means is really trying to go way beyond the superficial 
and I, I don't want to be too harsh here. I want to try to use sophomoric in the, in the most um, non-offensive way I can, but the superficial and sophomoric kind of, of chatter that goes on in blogs where no one, well, where people are blindly leading one another in a real small um, self-refuting, self-negating circle. And that's not helpful. You know, that sort of thing's not helpful. So, but, so this is a good opportunity to, to do this. And I, I actually want, am working on something to expand that article mm. and help continue to clarify this so that people realize where, you know, where the issues more and more, you know, where they are. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I, I got off on the block side. That's good. Jim or Jeff, you got any follow-ups or you want to push things further? We've got, what, what, what time are we at? Uh, 10 till? We we got quite a bit of time, so we've yeah. Got some time. I've That's still got right. some stuff to talk. We're scheduled till four, so may I push one more thing, please. Yeah, um, sure. In in the in that essay <laughs> on um, incompetent better things, yeah. that I I talk about the difference between typology in McCartney and Bosgaffen, Clowney, Westminster standards, things like that. So, I and and here's what's interesting. McCartney says that a type only becomes a type once something has superseded it and it is recognized by the interpretive community. And then the interpretive community realizes that what was previous turns out to be not the final consummate stage of things. It's only a type. Mm. And then interprets their experience, perhaps, as now the final stage. So that, so that typology, please hear this, is not intrinsic to the revelatory process, but is rather something that is known only after the type has become a type, after something has superseded it. Now, he's getting this, by the way, from people like Von Rott and, um, and Brueggemann and others, who, who basically, here's the way liberalism deals with typology. Um, that something happens in the Old Testament, and once it is separated from the experience of the people of God for a few hundred years, they've got to find a way to make that, old that previous reality correlate with their own experience. And so what they do is they quote-unquote actualize that previous event and say it can be correlated to events that we're experiencing today. And the correlations that we're going to draw are going to invest that previous event with typological significance. You guys see that? You see? That's how it works. And so, so typology, in terms of kind of anti-supernaturalistic history of religions schools, is the community's process of trying to actualize previous events and draw meaningful correlations between those past events and their contemporary experience. And so typology in the nature of the case is an ex post facto reality that is imagined. It's got the, the connections are imaginative connections created by the interpretive community. Versus, and this is what I try to do in the volume again, and, and we're trying to expand here, versus the idea that typology is intrinsic to the organic, progressive, revelatory process itself. Right? That, that typology is built into the history of special revelation. 
that the types are crafted by God, ordained by God, and function in themselves to be harbingers of things to come, to be patterns divinely ordained that future events will follow and Mm -hmm. supersede. And so the way I ask the question, is typology only retrospective? It's what McCartney says. Brueggemann says the same. Von Rad says the same. N says the same. Or is typology not only retrospective, but intrinsic? Do you see the point? It's not only something that you can see after the fact, but it's something that is built into the nature of revelation from the outset. One way to illustrate it is this. What was set before Adam in the Garden of Eden was eschatological life in confirmed righteousness, movement beyond probation and entrance into Sabbath rest. To be free from conflict with the serpent, right? And so what was he to do? Long, long story short, we're not going to talk about it in this conference, but he was to deal a death blow to the serpent, crush him underfoot. Through that act of representative obedience, in him the kingdom of God would advance from innocency to glory, from provisionality to finality. In him, the kingdom of God would reach its consummative telos, and the the eternal Son, by His Spirit, would confer upon Adam and Eve confirmed righteousness and holiness, perfected communion with God, and they would rest from their labors. That's what the sign of the Sabbath is, right? Mm-hmm. right? Okay. So what does that tell you? Listen, built into the very core of God's revelation from the outset is an eschatological trajectory toward glory. And and at every point along the line, while Satan persists, sin and evil continue, and rest has not been achieved, you are in something less than eschatological finality and glory. And this is stamped, built into the, sewn into the fabric of biblical revelation. And it's not something that is gradually, progressively created or supplied by the imagination of the interpretive community. It's ordained by God, built into the deep structures of biblical revelation. Yes, it's recognized, but the recognizing of it is the recognizing of something intrinsic, not a reactualizing and creative reimagining whereby you draw connections among events or people that don't intrinsically exist. Here's what we're saying. One last way of putting it. We say the typical connections intrinsically and organically exist between type and anti-type. And the Christotelis, um, from the liberal tradition moving into the way that tradition was co-opted by Enns and McCartney and others, they say, no, those typical connections are supplied by the creative, interpretive community. Right. It becomes a subjective hermeneutic again, and it goes back to Schleiermacher, the primacy of the subject. and. Yeah. Kant in terms of his epistemology. It's really interesting. You, you guys, if you know a little bit of history of Western philosophy, I don't want to, this is a side note. I don't want to get lost on this. But you know how Hume thought perceptions were just discreet things? He, you know, you know, oh, yeah. Yeah, oh, yeah. We all yeah, were talking yeah, about sure. that on the way out yeah, here. Yeah. Um, but, but he really did. He believed that, that, that perceptions are just absolutely atomistic, discrete units. And they don't have any intrinsic connection. Yeah. You know so how cause and effect is imagined he, and supplied so, by the human. There you go. Yeah. There's, the, that, there's the answer to that question. <laughs> the, the, that the causal connections, the connections among objects and perception, 
are supplied by what? Mm -hmm. Mental habits, what he called it, mm -hmm. by mental habit. That Humean image mm -hmm. is a great image for understanding the Christotelic notion of typology. That these are discrete events that don't have intrinsic, typical connections between type and anti-type, or type, 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 moving to anti-type. And so they're supplied by the mental habits and the edifying, imaginative reconstruel of the community. And they become typical, retrospectively. And the reform position, our position, a Bossian position, is no, they're intrinsic. They are intrinsic. They're, they're veiled. They're revealed, though yeah. veiled. That yeah. comes yeah. back to the doctrine of God. If mm -hmm. you don't believe that God is capable of communicating clearly mm -hmm. without garbling the transmission, if you don't believe that God is sovereign over history, but that God is, in fact, evolving, mm -hmm. perhaps even from a monad to a trinity, uh, these kinds of things are in the background. God, uh, see, we're... We're bringing to grammatical historical exegesis uh, a whole set of orthodox presuppositions that come from the text itself, of course. But I mean, we're, mm -hmm. we don't assume that the Bible is a brute fact that God somehow is connected with, which is... Or adopts, what, yeah. Mm -hmm. It does appear as though Christotelism in its pristine form, that's... Mm -hmm. that's what's in the background, whether it's known or not. And another, another way to think about it is, you know how for Kant, whatever meaning you're going to get out of phenomena is going to be imposed by the legislative powers of the knowing subject? That's similar to the typical connections in the Christological witness of the Old Testament relative to the legislative power of the imaginative community. So, it's, so Christotelism, as it's been practiced uh, in the ways we've described it, is kind of the triumph of the creative and autonomous community. Mm. And, and, it's, and it's, that's why, by the way, um, for instance, in, in N's, where is N's gone theologically? He's gone to Frankie and McCormick and Bart. Because you, you're, you're, you've got a... Uh, You've got a notion of history that is going to be sloppy, messy, amorphous, ambiguous. And if you're, gonna, if you're going to get any kind of Christological witness from the text, and N says this actually, nine I, it's got to be beyond the text, mm -hmm. in an event beyond the text, not a unity in the text. And that's where the you know, neo-orthodoxy can, can rear its head. Um, so it's not just another form or a different form of reformed hermeneutics, it's a hermeneutic of a completely different sort. Yeah, and, and that's, that's the problem. See, that's, see people, you've, we've got to remember this. There's, there was, uh, especially in the previous decade, there was a homogeneity of Christotelism that was being kind of co-authored by Enns and McCartney. And it was pretty clearly defined in terms of the Second Temple categories I've talked about. But, but what, what has happened is, since this has been exposed in varying ways, by the way, if you haven't read Dr. Gaffin's discussion of Christotelism on the website, Westminster, when, during the break, pull it up and give it, give it a look. It's really, really helpful. But, but what, what's happened since is it's so obvious. Here's what you've got to, I think, realize. It's so obvious that Christotelism is destructive 
of supernaturalistic, organic, progressive revelation. It's so obvious that it's destructive that what's happening now is people are trying to take the term Christotelism but excise it from the, the Enzian, McCartneyan soil on which it grew and maybe redefine it. And so, Reimagine it. Reimagine it. <laughs> oh, my God. Reimagining the reimagined. Mm-hmm. So now we're going to get in a solipsistic, you know, look out. Yeah. But, but, um, but, but, see, well, if, if we'll keep that in, in view, we'll be able to recognize that, that while the people who advocate for this view might have some sympathies for the Reformed faith, mm-hmm. let's say in their heart of hearts they're five-point Calvinists. Right? For, let's say in their heart of hearts they think that Voss's biblical theology is a great book. Hmm. In their heart of hearts, they love Klein's discussion on intrusion. I know I'm pushing it, but let's just say they do. <laughs> imagine right? it. Imagine. Just, yeah. yeah. Let's imagine. imagine. Let's imagine that. Here's what people. I'm saying. That their methodological pre-commitments are contrary to those theological tenets. Hmm. And so there's a fundamental conflict, a dialectic, at the bottom of this, and all I'm trying to do, Dr. Gaffin's trying to do, Dr. Poitras and others are trying, we're trying to do up here, all of us and all of you are trying to work on, what we're trying to do is make clear the entailments of the method of Christotelism. Mm -hmm. Set it clearly over against a properly calibrated Christocentric and Christotelic Vossian hermeneutic, and, and make those distinctions crisp so that hopefully, here's my goal, here's my goal. I'm not trying to upset one person on, on, in this world. I really am not. I'm wanting the people who are listening and might say, hey, wait a second. I actually have been letting that method suppress my reformed theological convictions. And now I can be properly Christotelic and properly Christocentric, both. And I've got clarity on that method that I want to get rid of. See, so that, so, so, but, but what I'm, what I think we're trying to do is force the issue so that it's very self conscious and very clear cut that you're practicing a fundamentally deviant method as a Christotelist over against Voss and the Christocentric Christotelist approach. It's a different method that is cutting against, to use an NZ analogy, the method is cutting against the grain of whatever Reformed theology you have. Mm-hmm. You see? So that we don't want it to. So what do you do? Take the method, realize what it is, and say that method is historicist. It is history of religions, comparative method, not history of special revelation. And then allow what God has joined, Christocentrism and Christotelism, not to be severed by what man has created. Christotelic method. So, so, so that that's one, that's one way of trying to think about it. So the goal here isn't to perpetuate disagreement um, or, or say things that might offend people. The goal is to help people see the way this method is cutting against the grain of some of the Reformed theology they love mm-hmm. and want to express more fully. It's a hindrance. Mm-hmm. It's, um, hindrance is putting it nicely, right? It hinders um, if it gets out of control, it destroys. 
I think uh, that's quite a uh, an important lesson. I think on that point, uh, we want to open things up for discussion and for people to ask questions. Let's uh, begin to see how far we get with questions on the topic. I imagine we did fill the time with that. But if for some reason we don't, then we can open things up maybe for questions of other sorts. But let's begin. Um, I think we can, if you speak up, if you stand up, I can recognize you like a proper Presbyterian moderator. And then we'll repeat the question. Then we can repeat the question. So does anyone have any questions for any any of us uh, on on point? No questions. That's it? Okay. No, I see hands. I'm kidding. kidding. Yeah. Uh, Well, I was was kind of before the... Yeah. But... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I think I'll no, pick I'll up a wireless you. mic while you answer so Sounds we can piss. Uh, I think you're moving in a wonderful direction. One, one way to think about the movement from the old to the new is to think about a lesser lit room giving way to a fully, or at least uh, fully for this age lit room. And so what, what you get in the ordeal of Noah, for instance, is you get a movement of judgment from a world that then was, 2 Peter 3, 6, to a world that now is. The then world, the hatate cosmos, perished by water. The now heavens and earth, the present heavens and earth, are being preserved for a judgment by fire. And the ark, as a miniature replica of a three-tiered universe, comes through the waters, is protected by God, and so Noah passes through the judgment ordeal by water. Right? And that is part of the Old Testament background for you in Christ. I'm getting louder. Wow. In Christ. <laughs> the room is lighting. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. Um, but <laughs> that just got me. Um, but, that, but you in Christ now, um, what, what this does, and Meredith Klein, by the way, just does a wonderful job with this in a book called Bioth Consigned. 
that water imagery, both in the deluge and in the exodus, in the Red Sea, becomes a graphic picture of the dual sanctions of the covenant. Cursing for those outside the ark, blessing for those in, cursing for the Egyptians, blessing for the Israelites who are baptized into Moses. And by extension, there's a kind of being baptized into Noah. So that that what's happening is you're getting an old covenant presentation of passing through a water judgment ordeal in a representative head, Noah, in and under the representative leadership of Moses, baptized into him. And this provides the organic stuff, the organic material from which a theology of baptism is going to be presented, by which the dual sanctions of the covenant are placed upon you, blessing or curse. And if you abide in one greater than Noah, If you abide in one greater than Moses, you will pass through that water judgment. And in Peter's language, 1 Peter 3.20 is where you're thinking, later in 2 Peter 3, uh, 3 through 13, you will pass into not the, the now heavens and earth, but the new heavens and earth where righteousness dwells. So I think you were putting it in a really helpful way that there are some very concrete, uh, very vivid uh, connections that exist between the deluge, the exodus, judgment in the Red Sea, and baptism. And the book that I think does the best job of fleshing all that out is um, um, Klein's uh, Bioth Consigned. And I just realized I didn't repeat the question. That's fine. Okay, sorry. I think, I think we, we can deduce it. You can discern. <laughs> Upon a second read, you can... Uh, no, I'm sorry. That's good. We do... Do you have any other questions? We do have a wireless mic now, so if you would wait, yeah, here up front for Jeff. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. Uh, this is great, guys. <laughs> I'm <laughs> kidding the candy shop here. Um, Dr. Tipton, you said, and I wrote it down here, I tried to write down your quote, and I think I thought I heard a couple amens over my shoulder when you said this, and you said that built into the very core of the Old Testament is an eschatological trajectory toward glory. Mm -hmm. Um, Could you just expand on that a little, maybe take some of Foss's epochs or however you want to do it, but just sort of take us on that trajectory. Give us a, a you or anyone else, just take us. I want to open it up for others too. I don't, do you want me to do one or? I'd love for you to do one. Yeah, <laughs> it'd be a pleasure to do one. Yes, yes. Um, what, what, one way to think about it, um, you, you can think about it through, uh, a, you can actually think about it from every portion of Scripture, but one, one way to do it is to, um, if you think about the way, for instance, um, the, the imagery of the tree of life is utilized. In the garden, what you have is, and I'll try to be as brief as I can be, but in the garden, you have a tree of life that is given to someone who's already alive, right? Yeah. And so that tree cannot be a bare symbol of the continuation of life unless you want to believe this, unless you want to believe that the highest good for Adam and Eve is a mutable, losable communion with God, the perpetual possibility of sinning against God, the perpetual presence of the dragging dragon the serpent, seeking to devour them and destroy them, and a 
constant threat of death from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So that, so that when, when you look at that situation, it is not as um, romantic. Eden is not as romantic as many would like to think within broader evangelicalism. It's actually a place that threatens death for disobedience. The serpent is prowling around seeking to destroy the people of God at that time. And Adam and Eve are subject to sin and death and loss of the communion bond, the wrath of God, and the pains of hell forever. And as long as they have not, as Adam has not passed probation as a federal head, that condition continues perennially. So, how does the tree of life function, for instance, once you look at someone who has done what Adam didn't do, who has crushed the serpent's head, Genesis 3.15, who has clothed God's people with garments of righteousness, 3.21, uh, 3.20, and who has passed under the flaming sword of judgment, Jesus Christ, um, what does he do? What does the Messiah do after the fall? Well, he does those things. He destroys the work of the serpent. He covers over the sin of his people. He passes under the flaming sword of divine wrath, the cherubim sword, a trial by knife ordeal. Um, and, and when he does that, and he stays dead for three days, having lived a perfect life and died a substitutionary death, he rises and is constituted what? This is, this is key. Life-giving panuma, life-giving spirit, 1 Corinthians 15, 45. He possesses, in the language of Hebrews 7, 16, an, an, the power of an indestructible life. In the language of Romans 9, uh, Romans 6, um, 9 through 11, he rises never to die again. And the life he lives, he lives to God, raised up, and he is what? He's beyond probation. He's beyond temptation. He is confirmed in righteousness and holiness, and he is seated at the right hand of God and has prepared a place for his people. He goes to prepare a place for them. And what does he promise? He says, I'm going to send the Spirit when he goes to heaven. I'm going to send the Spirit to you so that I can take you and bring you where I am. Mm -hmm. And how is that presented in the book of Revelation? As giving you the right to eat from the tree of life. In Genesis, in uh, Revelation 2, 7. In, in Revelation 21, 1 through 5, the, the city, the holy city, descends out of heaven. The river of the water of life flows through it. On either side of the river of the water of life are two trees of life, yielding fruit in season for the healing of the nations where there will be no curse and the people of God will dwell without sin or Satan or anything impure in the presence of God and they will live how long? They will reign forever and ever. That tree of life imagery then shows you that built into the promise of the tree of life was an eschatological advancement beyond conflict with the serpent, beyond mm -hmm. the possibility of death, beyond the loss of communion with God and confirmed in permanent righteousness and holiness. And you can do that with the tree of life. You can do it with Eden as a realm. You can do it with Adam and look at it through the lens of the second and last Adam. And then you can move forward and do it with Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. Mm -hmm. And so all of this, what, what you get then after Eden is you get this same fundamental story Rethematized with the cosmic flood language, the seed realm language, 
Noah, cosmic flood, Abraham's seed realm, Moses, David, kingdom, and, um, and um, sitting at the right hand of God. And all of these things come to their fruition in the eschatological kingdom of God in Christ. Second and last Adam, one greater than Noah, Abraham's mm -hmm. offspring, uh, second Moses, David's greater son. All of these things reach their consummation in him. See, and that's what part of the genius of Voss and Ritterboss and Gaffin and Klein. Right. That's where it lies, I think. Well, Klein is, is so helpful when he also develops this thought. Of course, he's developing the notion of the kingdom of God and how it comes. Ritterboss does much the same. Uh, but Klein also uh, develops the image of God in a wonderful way where he talks about the glory image. And we see that glory represented throughout all of covenant history, and it, and it shines. It's, it's refulgent in so many different things throughout the Old Testament, and it comes into clearest focus and brightness, of course, in the resurrected Son. But to, to bring this all together, and, and also to bring a hermeneutical discussion into soteriology, is what we see with the resurrection of the Son is the glory that was promised to Adam from, beginning, uh, from the beginning. Adam failed to obtain it, but now we're still headed towards the same telos. Again, Christotelism. We're still headed towards the same goal, but we have to go there. We have to get there through a different trajectory. We can't go from good to better, uh, which is that notion of elevating grace uh, it, that we find with, with Adam and, and what was offered to him in probation. We have to go from condemned, alienated, and corrupt to redeemed, then to consummated through Jesus Christ alone. He's the only, the only means of doing this and the only one who can accomplish it because he's fully God and fully man. And so when we see the resurrection of Jesus Christ and we see that glory, we see it even in a foretaste in like Matthew 17, I believe, of the transfiguration. And um, we see it in, in shades and bits and pieces throughout his life and then foretasted through all the elements and aspects of the Old Covenant administration. That glory is the glory that was always promised to us. And it's the glory that we will have one day and even have, I want to say now, in, though veiled and in parts. Yeah. As we're justified, we have the righteousness of Christ uh, now. Yeah. And so in a, in a sense, we look a little bit like him. We have new facet of glory. The glorious image is being reproduced in us. We are also accepted. We're heirs, co-heirs with Christ, and we have a right to all the privileges of the family of God. We're adopted. Being sons then, in a rightful sense, on our conference theme, we too also look a little bit more like Christ. Yeah. We also ha have the power of sin broken. It has been breached in our life. We're free from sin so that now we can live. We're set apart as holy. We're continually, day by day, by the power of the Spirit, our sin is being put to death and we're being raised in a newness of life. Once again, we have His holiness in part, but it's coming. All of these things contribute to that of, uh, to God forming the glory image in his people, again, on the same trajectory and toward the same goal that was always planned from beforehand. But now it can only come through Christ. And the beautiful thing about when we see that glory in Christ, it is original to his person because he is autotheos. Dr. Oliphant will, will bring that out oh, this yeah. evening. But then we have it too, and this is where we hope to end the conference for those who are able to stay um, in Romans 8.29. Um, I hope to develop this in a sermon Sunday morning uh, where we speak about the entire purpose of foreknowledge and predestination, God's reason for foreknowing and for predestinating a people 
for salvation. The reason he did it is so that we would be conformed to the image of his glorious son, conformed to the image of Christ, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. What's God doing? He's replicating a family, a glory image, a family resemblance in his people so that we would reflect his glory, in other words, his, the sum total of his attributes in, in, in accommodated form. Yeah. Uh, he's making us to be mirrors who would reflect his own glory throughout all of creation. Which, which the is, chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Yeah. So, so do you think that that's why maybe in 1 Corinthians 15, 48 to 49, Paul says we have borne the image oh, yeah. of the earthly man, but we will bear the image the heavenly man. It's an mm-hmm. image endowment in Christ. It has to be. And I think, uh, yeah. you know, you brought out in lectures before with Ephesians 1, 3, which talks about the fact that we're, we are in Christ, we're seated with him, uh, and we have every spiritual blessing in Christ in the heavenly places. And that characterizes our union with him, but I also believe that it qualifies uh, this, this notion of covenantal image conformity, glory image yeah, conformity. Yeah. And those are hyphens in between all those words. is <laughs> uh, because our union with Christ is first personal because it's with Christ. It is second, but not secondarily. I mean, second, it is spiritual, capital S, that's a gaff in capital S, spiritual because it's with the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, it is also eschatological because it's heavenly. And we look at the image, we're being conformed to the image of Christ by the Holy Spirit moving towards heaven, and our life is characterized by good deeds, by righteousness, by being exonerated and acquitted, by being accepted as son and being free, justification, adoption, and sanctification. What's the flip side? Everyone has an image to bring in the antithesis. The other, the only other alternative is that you are, and are you, you are continuing to be conformed to the image of this world, which is what? It's personal, but it's in fallen Adam. Mm-hmm. It's also spiritual, but it's the spirit of this world and the spirit of this age. Paul uses that language in Colossians and Ephesians. It is also eschatological, but it, it's a highway to hell, to, to uh, quote ACDC. <laughs> um, <laughs> As and, Bon Scott would say, right, uh, you know, right. my friends are going to be there Brian too. Johnson, I think. Yeah. No, I think that's Bon Scott. Okay, I'll take your word for it. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> and how's the, how, is that, how is that life characterized? It's not characterized by righteousness. It's not characterized by walking in the paths of righteousness, Psalm 1. It's characterized by disobedience by suppression of the truth and unrighteousness. And it's not justification, adoption, and sanctification. It is guilt, condemnation, those two both being the, you know, the, the alternative, the opposite of justification. It is, um, it's not adoption and acceptance. It's alienation from God. And it's not holiness and freedom from sin. It's bondage to sin, and it's total corruption. Excellent. But you see, it, it, it's two images. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Yeah. That's useful. So th- that's like a comprehensive... Mm-hmm way of describing the whole of covenant history from the yeah. lens of image. Right. And the bestowal of God's glory to his people, which was, in, yeah, <laughs> which was intended from the beginning. Any other questions? I'm sure there are many. Uh, Keith, yeah. Thanks, Jonathan. This one's, I think, short. Um, is New Covenant theology an example of when someone is not properly Christotelic hmm. and is more Christo? Or sola Christocentric. <laughs> I think you're, the the question is. I think that's a legitimate question. I think that insofar as you push for the kind of discontinuity that you get in New Covenant theology, 
it's, it's interesting that I think you might be able to correlate f at least formally some of the features of Christotelism in it. Yeah. Um, the bare but, grammatical historical method is certainly similar yeah, on the it, surface. It, it is similar. But I think where the difference would lie mm -hmm. would be that what's happening in terms of New Covenant theology is not indebted first and foremost to Second Temple Judaism. Right? It's not indebted to trying to replicate the model that the apostles were thought to be using. Can I restate the question again? Oh, yeah, yeah. Is New Covenant theology... <clears throat> I, I hear your answer, which great answer, of course. Um, but my question was: Was New Covenant theology somebody who is being Christocentric, um, mm. with a, an improper Christotelic, meaning they're they're five point Calvinists uh, and embracing five point Calvinism, mm -hmm. but when they're they're now reading the New Testament back into the, the Old Testament. At least that's the way I think I understand what they're doing, which is improper. As far as I understand, Christotelism, properly done, is I start with the Old Testament on its own grounds um, as a, well, what was it, a seed, and understanding what's going on in the seed as opposed to starting with the tree or the flower or whatever and improperly understood reading that back in to what the seed's supposed to look like. Hmm. Yeah, I'm not That's the end of the analogy there. No, very very good, very good. I'm not certain I I got the whole of the question real clear before my mind, so I mm. might let someone else give it a shot. Um Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I understand. But he's trying to put it in the category of these two categories you described. And he is Yeah, I I'll, I'll be honest with you. It, it, I'll just let me let me try it this way. I I think that um, if you're asking the question of um, exactly how much continuity or discontinuity are we to understand between old and new covenant? Um, particularly when it comes to the way that the law of God is going to relate to Christians and the way that certain promises are going to relate to the mm -hmm. church, that that's going to be something that has a broader scope than some of these more narrow Christological concerns. But I do think that um, if you have a proper balance of, of this, if you, if you properly understand uh, just as in a guiding assumption to, 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 to help us in discussion with dispensationalism, New Covenant the theology, and so on. If we recognize, and I feel, I feel like I'm probably not getting to all your concerns, so I apologize in advance, but, but we can talk. Here's the neat thing about our conference. Yeah. We can talk, talk, talk. Um, uh, let, let me say this, and then I want, I want to... Yeah, we Mr. can have Alton him answer. <laughs> yeah. All, all I would say as a guiding assumption, because I'm not certain where, where, where we need to go here, but a guiding assumption in light of Hebrews 3, 1 through 6, is that there is one covenantal household of God that is transtestamental. Moses was a servant. Christ is the Son. And 
And that house-building activity of God is organically related to the house-building of God now, and we are that house. That's a, a fundamental kind of category to use that helps give us perspective on some of these issues. And I, I could say more, but I want to hear what uh, Mr. Oliphant uh, well, has to say. Yeah, and we should mention this is related to their breakout session They're going to do a breakout session tomorrow. So uh, this might on be kingdom a, through covenant, yeah. and which is which is certainly related so to new let's covenant. Let's get a preview theology. of that. So there, there's a Here bearded a gentleman in the back who I I don't know if I know him. That beard has no <laughs> gray in it. No, that's that's all I was going to say. Actually, it's just a plug because we're going to be dealing with this tomorrow in our breakout session on kingdom through covenant. And in one sense, it depends on which new covenant theologian you're talking about. Mm. But um, I would say that yeah, I think you're onto something. Um, at least the guys who are writing kingdom through covenant are doing it not as explicitly, but there are some principles going on that we've discussed today that are definitely there. So stay tuned for that. Hmm. So, so that one, one way to put it is what, what we did today uh, provides some program, some, but not all of the programmatic hermeneutical um, keys that you need in place to assess that. And a breakout session will be addressing it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Any other questions? Yeah. Got one down here front. Then Mark uh, Van Drunen next, but down here in front. Thanks. Um, so my question is more in the context of uh, a desire to help someone whose Reformed convictions aren't consistent with their hermeneutics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so much of the Christocentric, Christotelic guidelines that you've given for properly interpreting Scripture uh, flow naturally out of the organic model that you've used yes, sir. Um, or, or necessary outflow of the organic model that, that you use. So then trying to help someone understand this better, what are maybe some models that they hold knowingly or not? Um, and then maybe how could we ask some probing questions to get them to see that their view of scripture is flawed? Yeah. Um, does that make sense? I, yeah, it does. And I'll try one that I think might prove useful. Um, and I'll, I'll give it to you in kind of a narrative form. Just, you know, when I came to Westminster in 1998 to do my PhD, I'd come from the faculty, uh, I'd come from studying under the faculty at Westminster, California. But that was really just a Westminster uh, East faculty moved across the, the nation, right? Um, it was Clowney and Klein and Frame and Strimple, Strimple and. Mm-hmm. The, the men that I really appreciated um, and, and learned so much from. And, um, and so I was educated with this understanding of Scripture that, that both Testaments are distinct but inseparable witnesses to Christ. Ed Clowney, in his Preaching and Biblical Theology, has a little chart um, and the final chapter where he talks about the distinction between biblical symbolism and typology. And a biblical symbol for Clowney is redemptive truth to the first degree. That is, God is present in promises, types, and sacrifices, in people and in institutions. He is present to save. But that's redemptive truth to the first degree. And what it does is it runs organically. Clowney draws a little line in the diagram. It runs organically to Christ, who is truth in the end, redemptive truth in the nth degree, the consummative telos of the biblical symbols in the Old Covenant. Mm-hmm. And so he's saying 
that the reality of the symbol and the reality in Christ are one reality. Voss says the same thing. One re- the symbols and Christ are the same substantial redemptive reality. They just differ in mode. One is typical. The other is eschatological. Voss, Voss speaks that way, and, and, and Clowney is quoting from Voss in his biblical theology. So, so the, the idea there is you have two iterations of one redemptive truth. Truth in the redemptive truth in the nth degree, redemptive truth in the uh, in the in the first degree, redemptive truth in the nth degree. And so there there's there's um, two installations or two installments of one homogenous redemptive story hmm. and presentation. So it so so um, when I come to Westminster, the, 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 and this was taken over partly from N.T. Wright, partly from Brueggemann, partly from Von Rad, the key that was being used by Enns and McCartney and, and these others was that Scripture, the Bible, is a mystery novel with a surprise ending. And the big uh, selling point was what a huge aha Christ is. It's like, whoa! And, and so they took the idea of mystery, the musterion, to be something closer to the way the dispensationalists interpret it, something unseen, something, something that is truly surprising and somewhat astonishing, like an, an analogy, like when Bruce Willis's ring falls off his finger and rolls across the floor, and you go, he's dead! Wow, and it's that kind of thing. Well, what what I think we need to what I think we need to recognize, and this is something that um, I wasn't present for this, but certain students were present early on in a PhD seminar. I won't tell you who the figures were, but there were faculty members present, um, and and uh, one of the faculty members said that the surpri- the mystery novel with the surprise ending is the way we should understand the two testaments instead of Clowney's two iterations of the same truth. Um, it's a mystery novel with a surprise ending. The question that came, and it was a very good question then, it's still a good one now, is, well, if it's such a surprise ending, why is it that Jesus held the Pharisees and his disciples responsible for failing to see the way the Scriptures testify to him even before he is raised from the dead? John 5, he's telling the Pharisees, if you knew Moses, you'd know me. So, what I think we can say to them is, look, if you want to try to help them and minister to them, you can say, look, there are two different notions of, of surprise. One is an absolute out-of-the-blue surprise, like a mystery novel where you just can't figure out who it is until it's revealed. And then there's, that is, where the surprise is absolutely veiled. Then there's the idea of a surprise where that surprise is relatively veiled. Where, like the, we talked about in 1 Peter 1, where the prophets are searching intently, longing to know more, and even the angels are longing to look into this, but they know the substantial reality. They just don't know it in all of its fullness, and all of its detail, and all of its richness, and all of its eschatological glory. Mm-hmm. And so, 
if you want to meet someone where he is when he says the Bible is a mystery novel with a surprise ending, what you want to do to try to communicate with people is soften that surprise and actually say, if, if you want to, after you talk about the absolute and relative surprise, then you want to say, and honestly, if Abraham saw my day, Jesus says in John eight fifty six, it's not really a surprise after all, is it? It's wonderful. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. It's astounding. It's breathtaking. It's overwhelmingly fecund and rich. And so in that sense, it's surprising how wonderful it is, but it's not a surprise in the strict sense of the term. Something like that to try to build a bridge in, talk to them, and then help them through it. That's one way to try. Have you, have either of you encountered this type of thing, uh, you know, practically speaking, either in your churches or in other regards? I have, I have an example that um, I don't know if this is helpful or not, but at least at the time for me, I thought it was, was helpful. It was in a lecture that Sinclair Ferguson gave at Westminster, and he was talking about the re- relationship between the old and the new relative to Christ, promise and fulfillment. Um, and he, he said something to the effect, of course, much more eloquently than I can do here and with a better accent <laughs> than a Jersey one. But um, it's a great one. <laughs> Jersey. <laughs> but Scotland you, versus New Jersey. <laughs> but the, the relationship is, is one of, of opaqueness to, uh, to explicit clarity. So, yeah. so if you see somebody, let's say, walking down the road towards you, you can you can see that person. You know that they are coming uh, towards you. You know that that they are on their way, but you don't have all the details yet. You don't have all of the fine nuances of facial features and um, you know exactly what color perhaps his tie is or what have you. And as they get as he gets closer and closer and closer, those details start to fill out or fill in for you. Um, and in a similar way, Christ um, uh, it, it's the same person. It's the same road going in the, in the same direction, uh, but it, it's moving from a, a, a position of opaqueness to, um, to a position of explicit clarity. Um, and for me, I thought that was a helpful illustration to use, mm-hmm. uh, especially with, with lay people that may not be as familiar with the technical jargon. Uh, thought that mm-hmm. that was pretty good. And, yeah. and that, you know, what works there is you could say this, that if the sun, as it were, is behind mm-hmm. the sun, if the sun is mm-hmm. behind Christ... What it does is it casts its shadow, his shadow yeah, that's good. over the Old Testament. And you can even get a title of it, like Dr. Poitras did, The Shadow of Christ yeah. in the Law of Moses. Uh-huh. So there you go. Yeah, there you go. It works. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's certainly good. A, good, Jim. Yeah. a lot of practical you know, issues going on. And, and oftentimes when we're discussing or debating or especially talking of things that are so foundational, such as hermeneutical principles, uh, you, you, you do need to do so, uh, as Van Til would say, you know, suaviter in modo, fortiter in re, yeah. and, and do so to be smooth and winsome and persuasive and to listen, to hear that you understand what the real concerns are and you're not importing them yourself, uh, but also never to uh, compromise the truth of the meth- method and message that you're trying to portray. May I say something? Yeah. I, I want to say just something that that's, I hope is pastoral and, and useful here. I want you to recognize this, that probably if, if you polled 100 people who were advocating a Christotelism over against Christocentrism, 
and you ask them specifically, what is Christotelism? And what specifically is the Christocentrism that you think needs to be replaced with Christotelism or stand over against it? I don't want to exaggerate, but I suspect you would get somewhere in the neighborhood of a 99 different conceptions. In other words, it's going to be very person variable, and, and there's going to be confusion. The two things you've got to be aware of, there's going to be confusion, and there's going to be um, passion that can run in the direction of anger. I want you to realize that. So if there's confusion, what you have to excel at, and, and, and uh, Camden just said this, you have to listen. Some people might actually agree with you and think they don't. They might. That's really possible, and you need to listen. If someone says, hey, or you introduce us, I'm, I, I am a Christotelic and not Christocentric, <laughs> you know, I'm sure that's not going to be how it happens, but if it's someone that militant, you still need to listen because you don't know for sure exactly where that person is until that person tells you. Right. The second thing is please remember this. Please remember this. There, there is, for reasons that are built into the fact that um, Westminster has stayed a strong Vossian course and refused to go the direction of neo-orthodoxy, post-conservative, evangelicalism, new perspective, um, uh, Christotelism, things like that, because we haven't gone that direction, there are people who are upset about that. They're very mad. And, and you've got to realize that, that when, when you're dealing with someone who is upset or, or angry, don't let yourself become equally upset with them. In other words, do your best to, to think of yourself not as someone who refutes, but someone who serves. Because you, and, and, you can have the mm -hmm. right answers and be really articulate and, and run circles around someone who's not studied much. You can do that. But if you're doing it in a kind of, I don't want to hit my microphone, a chest-thumping kind of way that's triumphalistic and condescending, you know what you're going to do to that person? You're going to ingrain that person in more and more hostility and more and more opposition. But if, but if you really, truly want to serve that person, mm. you're going to listen patiently, and you're going to do everything you can do to explain the fullness of this gospel we're talking about in a way that meets the person where he or she is, but moves that person into this fuller, more robust understanding. And, and if your goal is to serve and not refute, I promise you the people that you talk to will see it. Now, I'm not saying that it's going to cure everything, uh, that it's going to dispel all of the confusion or quell all of the anger mm -hmm. that's out there. But I really want to encourage you to, to try to avoid any form of triumphalism in that, hey, I've got all the answers. I don't think you believe that, but, but in your heart, it's easy when you start to see more clearly where, where, a, where legion errors lie, it's easy if you don't watch your heart to get a little bit triumphalistic, to get overly aggressive, and to stop trying to serve the church and serve people who are really concerned and inquiring. So, you know, put, we could have said this at the beginning, maybe it would be, but I think you, it's better put now. 
that we put the issues out there. So I want to encourage you to do it, to, to, to approach it in a, in a, in a Christ-like way where you are seeking to consider the person you're discussing better yeah. than yourself yeah. and to serve that That's person. Cool. Well, from that same chapter in Philippians, you know, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And it describes how he humbled himself by taking the form of a servant uh, and being uh, born under the law and suffering to the point of death so that he too would be raised, that, that pattern of suffering unto glory. And if we don't consider ourselves servants, then, then we're, re- we're not replicating, and, and vice versa, the Spirit's not replicating in us, that pattern of Christ. The, the image that he gives to us also has with it a, not just a telos, but a, but a mode, a road, a, a, a derrick, you know, the way, road, or path that goes toward that telos. And it's always a road of suffering unto glory. Right. And, and that and needs you, to be demonstrated in our lives. That's right. And if you get maligned or misrepresented right. or people say things about you that are not true or, or, or mislead or misquote or, mm-hmm. or, or put you in a bad light, recognize that that is the Lord's way of conforming you, as, as Cam would say, to the image of Christ. Mm-hmm. It is a conformity to image of Christ through suffering. And you have to learn as a Christian, to embrace this and not let a root of bitterness grow up so that you respond with more venom than the person who's responding against you, that you respond with, with more attitude than the person is, is using with you because mm-hmm. it, 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 you're, you're not being conformed to the likeness of Christ in something like that. You're, you're actually being conformed to something that is not Christ-like. Mm-hmm. And so... Anytime debates come and they're going to follow you and your patient endurance and tribulation in the kingdom of God, they're going to follow you everywhere you go. Everywhere you go. You're never going to get away from them. But you've got to see them as divinely ordained means by which you're conformed to the likeness of Christ so that hopefully the opponents of, of the gospel um, will, will see in you a true, how about this one? How about this one? A, a, a true um, conformity. Mm-hmm. to Christ in, in, in the way that you handle yourself in the discussion. I think we got room um, and time for one more. Mark had a question, and he's got the microphone. There you go. Dr. Tipton, thank you very much for that pastoral reminder about not giving in to our flesh that desires to be right at all times, but to be a servant. I appreciate that. Um, just two real quick questions on clarifications. Did um, I was writing notes so quickly? I wasn't sure if I heard you right. Uh, did you uh, say that? Um, I hope I can remember. I said a lot now that I'm thinking <laughs> about it. I'll, yes, sir. Go ahead. Um, did the did the Old Testament prophets understand the dual meaning in all of their prophecies? Hmm. Um, ac- according to what what First Peter one um, gives you, the the there is a. What we can say is this, that the Spirit of Christ, what the Spirit of Christ was testifying to them with regard to the sufferings and glories of Christ came through in such a way that they realized they're serving us. So that, so that insofar... Oh, I never talked about this. Got just saying. So, so, so insofar, please recognize this. There, it, oh, it's a point I meant to make. Go ahead. Okay. Just in a, you know, because I know we're kind of coming up on the end of time. But see, you can have in the Old Testament, in relation to the New, you can have a first level fulfillment 
of a prophecy that has a second level fulfillment at a later time. So that David, Psalm 23, um, David can be yeah. the, um, what we might call penultimate fulfillment of this good shepherd. And then um, there's also, in terms of the Spirit's communication to the prophets, a recognition that this is not the final um, ultimate form of the shepherd. Right? But David's still an organic fulfillment of yeah. that, but so, yet it's sub-eschatological. That's right. So the right. question is, when we say that there is a first-level fulfillment of meaning when it comes to an Old Testament prophecy, the question is this. Is the second-level meaning an organic extension of meaning resident in the first level, or is the second level something that is imposed by the interpretive community after it comes to recognize this must have been the first level? We're opting for the latter, uh, for the former, not the latter. We're opting for the idea that entailed and included in the first level meaning, the initial level of fulfilled meaning in that Old Testament text, there is included within its purview the eschatological extension of it to Messiah. And that is something that, according to 1 Peter 1, is communicated to the prophets. Now, here's where the debate uh, is not. We don't know exactly how clear. Some people say, is it minimal clarity or maximal clarity? That's not the debate. It's that it was present, right, right. and that the connection between the first level and second level meaning are organic and intrinsic mm -hmm. and known by the prophet in whatever degree is present. The degree is never addressed in Scripture. Does that help in, in terms that, of that? That does, okay. and that kind of. And ties I meant in. to talk about that, but we we for, I forgot. Yeah. And you that's very up? helpful because in type when you study the typology, and I think Jim hit on this um, that he he mentioned the word subjectivity, and uh, in your comments regarding how people get typology wrong. Anytime you move from the subjective or from the objective reality to the subjective experience, what that does is that takes the focus off Christ where it belongs in the objective reality and subjectively moves it on to us. And I think yeah. that's... that's uh, it does. And by the way, one last aside, that what's behind much of this um, Christotelic um, reading is what's called post-conservative evangelicalism or more deeply post-liberalism. They're just two species of one genus. And, and instead of saying, that, and what, they, what they turn the attention to in theologizing is a cultural linguistic model of doing theology. Hans Frey, George Lindbeck on the post-liberal side, John Franke, Stanley Grenz on the post-conservative side, they're going to root the theologizing and the typological strata of connection, they're going to root that in the cultural linguistic experience of the church. And it plays right into it. So, so in back of, the, of this reading of Second Temple Judaism is a kind of programmatic uh, post-liberalism uh, or post-conservative evangelicalism. And that's why it's, it's, not a, um, it's not a mystery. It's one reason why ends the proponent of Christotelism, was so infatuated with um, the Beyond foundational vo Foundationalism volume of Grenz and Frankie and YN's wanted Frankie teaching systematics at Westminster. These things really do go together. Mm -hmm. Good. 
I think we'll wrap things up. Uh, we want to thank everybody so much for coming to this pre-conference. In terms of the schedule, uh, we'll be done now. We'll, we'll stay around for a few minutes and talk. Um, there uh, is information in the programs uh, regarding local area restaurants. Uh, there's plenty of places to go and a lot of good places to eat, um, and, and we encourage you to visit some of the places we've mentioned. Of course, there are many others. Uh, we will meet back here and begin at 7.30, but I'm sure people will be trickling in, and, and uh, we will you know, try to promote interaction. There's a fellowship hall downstairs, if you haven't seen it already, with coffee and some refreshments, and there's a book table down there as well. There's also a Logos display now, uh, which is set up there in the foyer. And um, Logos Bible Software is here representing. And um, to speak with uh, James, I believe, is, is here for Logos. So you speak with them about uh, special deals and, and training. A lot of exciting stuff going on. But let's give our guest, uh, Dr. Tipton, a hand. Thanks. We'll see you at 730.